Well, it's been a while, but uh, happy to be back doing the Fast Podcast and making a return for 2019. I I couldn't think of a better subject to start the year with, albeit, oh, I don't know, three and a half months late for uh, for my (laughs) 2019 debut is growing up in Louisiana as as a boy in the 70s and 80s and being a professional wrestling fan. And I don't mean that as a slight against girl professional wrestling fans, but it was just, it was part of recess at school. It was what we did in our rooms. We tried to copy the moves. And I I couldn't think of a better person to visit with on the podcast today than, well, you know him as Lieutenant Commander Eric Blackburn. A lot of folks do on SEAL Team on CBS. But I've known him way longer than this, Judd. Judd Lorman joins (laughs) us. Judd, how are you? Man, I'm doing great, and I, I, I'm like you, man. I can't think of a better topic uh, for anyone's podcast, for that matter, but especially for yours. But, man, I'm, when you called and said, hey, uh, you want to do me a favor and, and talk wrestling on a podcast? I'm like, uh, yeah, what time? <laughs> so, I mean, it's, you know, people see you on, on, on SEAL Team, and, you know, it's what a great run. I, I know that you guys are, um, are on break right now. Real quick, we'll touch on SEAL Team before we, we dig into Mid-South Wrestling. But So you're on a break now, but so far, so good. Looks like you guys will be back for another season. Yeah, yeah, so far, so good. And, and on a break as far as shooting goes, but still airing. Right, that's uh, right. Through, through, through uh, sometime in May. Uh, on Wednesday nights on CBS, and you know we everyone is super optimistic about our season three. We should find out, uh, you know, official official word we should get here sometime at the end of April. But yeah, so far so good. Everything's great, and uh, CBS has been thrilled with the show. And uh, yeah, it's it's just a, a great, uh, you know, it's a, it's it's a great thing to get. In, in my line of work, it's a great thing to get regular work. But anytime you can get regular work on something that you know you actually believe is doing telling good stories that people in America should watch. I mean, that's icing on the cake. So it's it's an honor, and it, I'm humbled by being on the show every day. Well, and I've been really impressed with, because, you know, you and I have been Facebook friends since since you were doing Farm Bureau commercials here, and maybe even before that. <laughs> but but to, to, to see all the good things that you guys do from a charitable standpoint, events that you attend uh, out in Hollywood, and, of course, bringing attention to the subject matter of the show, though it is theater on the show, it is a real-life thing, and you guys do a lot for the military, and I've been really impressed with that. Yeah, thanks for noticing that. It's, um, I, you know, honestly, it's one of those things that um, in the past, I, you know, I have always been a, a supporter of our, our troops and veterans. And uh, in Hollywood, you know, I don't know if you've heard this, but there's lots of, there's lots of uh, fanatics and, and causes that people get into, you know. Of course. <laughs> right. And uh, I've always felt that, like, you know, when it comes to vets and, and, and our troops, um, that's the one cause that it, it, it doesn't matter what side of the, the political spectrum you're on. Um, I, I think it's just something that everyone should be behind. Absolutely. And, yeah, and getting to do the show, fortunately, that's a, a, one of the perks is that we've been given these opportunities to go visit troops, uh, you know, go do things with veterans groups. And anytime I'm out there, man, I'm, I'm just like, yeah, sign me up. I'm there because, you know, what an opportunity. You know, it's not, it's not every day you get a chance to be asked to do something like that that can benefit them. And, yeah, that's just one of those incredible perks that's come with such a great, great job, you know. It's art imitating life and life imitating art all at the same time. You guys uh, you guys doing a lot of good things. So what you got to promise me is you will text me the day that you find out you guys get picked up for Season 3 so we can announce it. How's that? 
Oh, you got it. Yeah, that sounds great. So let's go back now to the to the mid nineteen seventies, and and I was probably ten, probably about ten years old when I kind of discovered TV wrestling here on on Channel Ten, and it was a, it was a little bit after, from what I understand, that when they used to do the matches at the Channel Ten Studios downtown on Jefferson. So I wasn't watching then; I was a little too young to be into it. So this is mid seventies when I first got into it, and it was you know being sent to us and all the TV markets in Louisiana and Mississippi, I guess, from from Shreveport. It was filmed at uh, the KTBS studios up up in Shreveport. And so just to kind of give you a timeline of when I first kind of got immersed in, in what was then called NWA Championship Wrestling, it was Tri-States, I think is what it was referred to as. Leroy McGurk owned it. He was on the broadcast with, with Boyd Pierce and Reeser Bowden was the ring announcer. And, and it was Bill Watts, and it was Carl Cox, Skandor Akbar, Armand Hussein, Dick Murdoch, Jerry Oates. So mm-hmm. that was kind of when I when I got in it. The spinning toehold, I think, was the first wrestling move I ever tried on somebody on the playground, and that was <laughs> uh, that was in response to somebody doing Skandor Akbar's camel clutch to me, and I cried because I couldn't breathe. But anyway, so this is this is mid nineteen seventies, and it was it was you know. I think part of me knew all along, and I'm sure my parents were telling me, hey, that's not real, but but yet you're 10, so you get absorbed into it just like anything else, watching a movie or reading a book. You kind of forget what's real and what's not, and, and so you you get fired up and, and pick favorites and, and can't wait till next Saturday at 1 o'clock when Channel 10 is going to show the next episode because you start to, to follow the storyline. So I'm in mid-70s. Bill Watts is a wrestler. He's certainly not involved in the promotion. He may have been helping to book, but he wasn't like the the man running the show then. But you weren't right. here quite yet then, were you? No, no, no. I was, I was still um, a young child in the 70s. I think, you know, in mid-70s, I was only, you know, a few years old. And then, oh, gosh, I was in uh, living in, over in Houston until, I think, uh, the end of 79. Okay. And at that point, you know, I hadn't seen any wrestling at all. I, I didn't even know what it was. And I, we moved over and went. Uh, we we lived in. Uh, my family and I moved to Saudi, Saudi Arabia, from I guess it was late seventy nine till about mid eighty three. And in mid eighty three, we moved. You know, my dad's contract for the uh, the job that he had in Saudi was over, and the place we moved back to was Lafayette, Louisiana. Right. And. You know, I picked up Mid-South almost immediately uh, upon getting to, uh, to Lafayette. But I do remember this one time. I think the only other time in my memory that I ever saw wrestling was my grandmother lived in Orange, Texas. Okay. And during that, during that somewhere in that period between 80 and 83, um, we, you know, we, we would come home, I guess, every three to six months to visit the family, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm, ho- I'm at my grandmother's one day. Saturday morning, you know, and flipping through the channels, and I land on, and I'll never forget the visual. It was the Sheep Herders. Okay, so now would this have been Houston wrestling? It had to have been Houston wrestling because uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, I remember, you know, in my, my, in my mind, it's it's it, it was definitely Houston wrestling, and these guys are doing uh, what they call one of their little promos for for a local match, right, and. They're doing this interview from behind a, uh, the, the holes of a cage <laughs> and beating on each other's heads, and these guys are insane. And I'm probably like nine, and I'll never forget. I, I mean, it, 
my eyes just went deer in headlights. It was like, oh, my God, what is this? Right. I had never seen anything like this. And uh, I guess it stuck with me because, you know, the visual of the what is this thing. And then, um, yeah, who knows? Maybe my grandmother told me to flip the channel. I don't know why I didn't keep watching. <laughs> yeah, probably, that, but, probably so. A lot of parents didn't want their, their young ones watching wrestling because they did what we did. They imitated the figure four and broke somebody's leg. So, you know, yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> you can't watch that. Well Judd, change the channel. Right, right. I, I'm not sure what happened, but um, but but I'll never forget seeing the Sheepers. And then, um, again, we went back, saw you finished up, and then landed in Lafayette. And in mid-'83, when I got here and, and saw Mid-South for the first time on a Saturday, uh, that was it. I mean, I you know, hook, I was in. Hook, was, line, and sinker. You, you were in. And, and, and by the way, we, did, we didn't say it at the beginning, but way before Judd was doing TV and even doing any acting at all, um, you were hosting for for many years on the Acadiana Open Channel here here in Lafayette on cable. You were hosting yeah. this week in wrestling, and it, it again apples and oranges compared to what you're doing now. But it was, I guess, your first foray into camera work and all that sort of stuff. But it was basically getting on TV every week and wrapping up what happened, kind of a, a, an overview of what happened on wrestling that week. But you always reminisced and you always talked about oh, you know the, yeah. the, the the glory days for in our, our our opinion the glory days of wrestling I actually got to visit you on the show a couple of times and really enjoyed that yeah. and that's why immediately was like i want to do wrestling i want to talk about mid-south and georgia and some of the other things but but judge the guy to, to visit so if people didn't understand why you were here Maybe they weren't into AOC. Maybe they didn't have AOC or This Week in Wrestling. But but you have a, a, a bit of a pedigree when it comes to being an uh, – <laughs> you were a promoter. You put you did uh, you did matches uh, in, in different yeah. markets. You did uh, Robichaux Center. You did some out, out of the Ooh. area in Acadiana. You were a bad guy manager at one point. So you've done a little bit of everything when it comes to wrestling. Yes, yes. In fact, um, you know, it, it was kind of one of those things that I always wanted to get into uh, with the wrestling business – in one way or the other, and and nearly, I, you know, I, I don't know if you ever knew that story. I almost went to um, in the early 2000s, sometime maybe 2005. I went up to Stanford to uh, to talk to them about working on uh, the WWE's writing team. Well, and um, so yeah, it's been a, it's. Uh, you would have been well, better than Russo, I can tell you that. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I I look back on that now, and I I think you know. Glad that didn't work out, you know. Um, I, I don't think I. I think I would have been a. What is it? The square peg in the round hole, you know. Yeah, you're. You you would have been. You you way too. Uh, and you would you wouldn't have been afraid to say what you think because you had the the knowledge of where the real craft of of storylines and wrestling developed because right. you watched it firsthand so a lot of a lot of other markets and it was kind of a territorial business for decades and a lot of other markets tried to copy what Mid-South Wrestling was doing. And again, they had influence from other markets and input from, from guys like Jerry Lawler. You know, Bill Watts really did did get some outside influence. But the storylines in Louisiana and the TV show was like a male version of, uh, or a guy version, a athletic version of The Young and the Restless. I mean, it was, it was must-see oh, yeah. soap opera TV for guys every weekend. Yeah, it sure was. It was, uh, it, it was huge. And then, you know, for uh, for years it was it was a guy thing, and then it became a a guys and girls thing. I right. mean, it was it got to be so uh, huge, and it was it was all because of their incredible TV show. It really was, um, and, and of course, and not, you know, not to slight the, the the amazing crop of talent as far as the wrestlers go when when they came through here. I mean, you know, some incredible talent, 
But uh, you, you take that incredible talent, and if you don't have a good TV show, it doesn't do as well. Yeah, there were great wrestlers in other markets that didn't have the success with uh, with live events that, that were fed directly from the TV show. So basically, the TV show was an hour-long promo to set up yeah. the, the, the live matches coming to... In Lafayette, back when I was a kid, it was the Sports Center, and then it was Municipal Auditorium, and and mm-hmm. uh, you know, in Baton Rouge, at the Centralplex was kind of a big thing back in the early '80s too. So the TV show set up selling tickets, and besides a few commercial dollars they made for the for the for the TV show that ran on the weekends, that was what they were doing was trying to compel people to buy tickets to go to the local matches in their town. Yes, and I, I, I used that uh, exact same. Um Description a lot of times when I describe that to people, I say, you know, back then your 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 weekly one hour slot was put on in the different regional, uh, different, not just the, in the territory, but but even in the you know individual cities, it was put on in Alexandria, it was put on in Lafayette Station, the Baton Rouge Station, and it was a it was a, a fifty nine minute trailer. Yep. To yep. get you to go three weeks later, or you know, however many weeks the countdown was until they showed back up live at the Municipal Auditorium. And it's funny how three weeks with a storyline change on television, the right matches had already been booked in advance to match the storyline that was recorded weeks earlier. It's kind of weird how they were able to do that, but, but <laughs> right. you know, as a kid, I kind of started to figure that out. I'll explain that in just a little bit. But going back to the, to, to the, the first you know, few years that I watched it, you know, Ted DiBiase was was a rookie. I remember when he first showed up. Uh, Ray Candy was a big star, uh, throwing candy to the kids in the crowd. And again, this was at the KTBS Studios in Shreveport, where they had like four rows of chairs around three-fourths wow. of the ring. So, I mean, it was a little bitty setting for, for the TV show. But I remember distinctly the first appearance of the Junkyard Dog. And... When he came out with his wheelbarrow, and people might not remember this, but Junkyard Dog, first of all, he came out to Bad Bad Leroy Brown because it says meaner than a junkyard dog in the song. So that was his original theme song before Another One Bites the Dust later. And when he came out, he had a wheelbarrow full of junk, and he threw all the junk in the ring, but he was a bad guy. When he first Mm -hmm. started, he was a real mean heel and of course i didn't know that he had trained in calgary and all the you know i learned all this stuff later but i was like who is this look at how big that guy is he's gonna kill everybody (laughs) and of course he's a former nfl player i think he may have driven by training camp for somebody and they gave him you know credit (laughs) for being a former nfl player but but i remember distinctly when jyd showed up so again that was a little before you got here but there was a transition late 70s through early 80s Wrestling TV in Louisiana and, and the Mid-South region changed when Leroy McGurk sold the promotion to a guy that had been one of his biggest stars and had been a booker helping to make the matches and, and do the storylines for years prior to buying it, and that was Cowboy Bill Watts. Oh, yeah, the Cowboy. So when Bill Watts takes over, that's kind of when you're moving in here and when it's really starting to explode as yes. probably the number one rated TV show on the weekends, not only in Lafayette, but in New Orleans, Baton Rouge, Alexandria, Shreveport, Monroe, Little Rock, Jackson, Mississippi. When that time slot was on, I know they had huge ratings numbers. Yeah, you know, um, it, what's amazing is, we, we, we talked about this recently, the Mid-South Wrestling TV show, um, again, it was it was placed in, in these individual markets. And the reason it was placed is, you know, they would ship the tape over to Lafayette, but they would send the tape to Lafayette, 
with the specific inserted promos. I forgot to mention that a while ago when I was talking about the trailer. You know, for the Lafayette matches, right? Right. Well, the, 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 the tape that's sent over to Alexandria is the same television program, but it's got the inserts for the upcoming card in Alexandria. Came on every, Sunday morning yeah. at 9 o'clock on KALB because I watched the rerun just in case I missed oh, something the too. day before. Yeah, me too. I would always watch the the the, the uh the I, we caught four of them at one point. It was the Lake Charles, mm-hmm. uh, uh, of course Lafayette on, on on a couple of stations, and then uh, Baton Rouge and Alexandria. And I would yep. I would watch them all. And but to your point, the numbers were absolutely insane by even today's standard. Because back in the you know in the early '80s when Watch took over, uh, they were doing what, what we would call like about a fifty share. And as the years progressed, by the time they hit 84, they were having weekends where they were doing like a 70 share, 75 share. And what that means is, for those who don't understand the the TV rating system, that means that for every television set that was on at the time in the the market, 70 to 75% were watching Mid-South Wrestling. Yep. (laughs) And that is insane. Oh, it was, it was crazy. It was absolutely crazy. And and they developed these superstars. So JYD would be one that I would say right off the top of the, 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 the heap was probably, if not the biggest superstar in that era here, one of them for sure. He was a huge yeah. draw. He's probably sold more tickets than anybody unless Andre yeah. the Giant or Ric Flair came to town. And that was all, again, predicated on – what was happening on television, the storyline. So kind of explain what Bill Watts did. Because, I mean, you and I have talked about this, drinking beer and visiting over wings or whatever, talked about this for years and years. But what did Bill Watts do when he took over that made this thing explode here? You know, that's, man, um, it's a great question. Because, and it's tough to answer with one thing, but I think where Watts was probably different, you know, lots of territory, all the territories, protected the business back then. And, and what I mean by that is um, you did nothing ever to even insinuate that this wasn't on the up-and-up fighting, right? Right. But Bill Watts paid such a – you know, Jim Ross talks about this all the time. Anytime someone asks Jim Ross in an interview about Bill Watts, he'll tell you that Bill Watts to this day was the most detail-oriented person that Jim Ross has ever worked with. So when he put together a – uh, whatever it is, a 43-minute after, after commercial, a 43-minute television show up at the Irish McNeil Boys Club or wherever the, they were shooting it. He literally paid attention to every second of that program. And if it didn't belong there for a specific reason, it wasn't in the show. So it was his attention to detail. It was his eye for talent, obviously. But on top of that, I think that it was also his respect for the athletic nature of what wrestling should be. You know, Watts you know, where, 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 let's say Vince McMahon, you know, mid-80s, people think of uh, the WWF as the muscle guys. The it, big, it, it was like a cartoon to me. It was like a, yeah, you know, it was like a circus. It was circus. very cartoonish. But you remember there was that explosion where you had to be a 300-pound muscled-up six-foot-six guy, right? Right. But but Watts was more like, I want those legitimately tough guys down here. I want guys who have, who have played football. I want uh, legit wrestlers. I want... People like Steve Williams, that was the uh, four-time All-American from OU. He wanted tough jocks, um, and that's the style. He wanted a hard-hitting style, and I don't know where he got his storyline, his creativity from, but my gosh, it was just amazing. It was 
you know, he would take and, – and I know that there was – and I'd seen this. It might have been a Jim Cornette interview where they talked about how Watts kind of had the, the – the early on, he had the guys in the wrong roles. Like, he had what you would call the pretty boys, the baby faces. He had those guys as the bad guys. And I think Jerry Lawler was like, Bill, you got it all wrong. Make those guys the good guys and let the, yeah. the little girls fall in love with them, and they'll come to the to the matches with their boyfriend who's into the storyline just because they want to take a picture with, you know, Mike George or Tommy Rich or whoever it happens to be that at the time was the, the ultimate baby face as far as the female audience. It's went. Yeah, yeah, and and, and what, what I think what he told him was uh, it was Jerry Jarrett, the uh, Jeff Jarrett's father, who's promoting Memphis. Watts goes down to the, to, to visit him, and, and somewhere in around '83. So it was, was Jarrett was before watching. it was before Lawler took over. Yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. Lawler was Lawler had taken over as the main star and was probably uh, part owner, I guess, at that point. Right. But Jerry Jarrett was still the man in charge, and he was you know these guys had their cigar and whatever and went to. Watts goes over to the Memphis Coliseum and uh, and they're you know drawing huge numbers there in Memphis or whatever and Jerry had come to look at Vince's stuff and vice versa so they get together and share ideas and he says man you got nothing but monsters you know you got big bad animals but you don't have anything to draw the girls right he said look at your crowd he said it's it's, it's 80 90 percent male he said imagine if, if if for every 10 males you had you could at least draw another five females you have a 50% increase in your gates. So they worked out a trade, I believe, and, and I, I've, I've never gotten a straight answer on this as far as who Jerry Jerry got in return. But in that trade, back in late 83, I think it was, Watts ended up bringing in Terry Taylor, the Rock and Roll Express, uh, Jim Cornette, the Midnight eventually came right after that, and maybe one or two others. But it was a huge difference in the television product at that point. You know, he was already writing great stories. He had the big guys. Now he had these young, quick guys that were handsome and whatever, like you said, the, the baby faces, that now the girls would like. Right. And uh, many of the wrestlers and historians refer to that period as the, the class of 84 because if you go back and you look at the talent that came through in 1984 in Mid-South Wrestling, it's, I, I, I would compare it to, uh, to anything we've seen since. It was, like I'd, put it, I'd put it above anything we've seen since as far as the talent roster goes. Yeah, and you can think about, you know, the the, the NWO era at, at WCW when they had all those talented guys. I mean, they they because they were stealing people from all the territories. They were getting all the big names from everywhere other than yeah. the people that the WWE had. And, and But I still think pound for pound and mid-carder to, to headliner, Mid-South Wrestling for being just a, ter- a small, you know, three-state early-on territory – had an incredible amount of talent and, and adding in those people that came in from Memphis. And, you know, the, the Rock and Roll Express, you talk about out of nowhere, they come in what? and they're, they're kind of scrawny. I mean, they weren't – they didn't look like they could beat anybody, but you had especially Ricky Morton who could who could make anybody look like a world champion in the ring. I mean, they you know sure. – they and, and that was the same thing with the Midnight Express – and Eaton, because Bobby Eaton was such a good worker in the ring that he could make Robert Gibson look like Andre the Giant with moves. Like a million bucks. Because he was yep. so good. So all of these things, it was almost like the perfect storm here in Mid-South. Well, not, yes. And, and to, not to mention, as far as the perfect storm or the, the perfect recipe goes, let's not forget that this was at the time where now households were all starting to get into the MTV stuff. Yep. The music videos. 
you know, David Lee Roth and Jump and all that. And now, all of a sudden, we've had the big, you know, burly football uh, roughhouse guys for years in Mid-South. And, and in 84, 83, 84, you still had that, obviously. But then here comes these new guys that are quick and flying around your screen, uh, you know, taking yep. balls and jumps like you've never seen before on the show. And they've got this music and this flash about them that, that, that goes hand-in-hand hand with the rise of MTV, and boom, you've got a recipe for those 70 to 75% shares, yep. you know? Well, you had, uh, and and they would actually even do like their their little videos, like when the Fantastic showed up, you know, and they had what was it, Sharp Dressed Man, and they were in their tuxedos yes, yes, and stuff. The music videos. So yep. they really kind of tried to find a way to incorporate younger audience and and female viewers, obviously, and ticket ticket buyers. And you, <laughs> I'm thinking back now onto onto my childhood, that late 1970s era when we had. Buck Robley and Bob Sweetan, and yeah, they weren't exactly guys that you were going to put on a poster and hope that a little girl would buy. No, no, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and and that was what was so great about that time period when they when they were hitting on all cylinders. Um, you know, you had you still had in '84, uh, beginning of '84, you still had Dog, right? But you had guys like Hacksaw Duggan and Butch Reed and those guys, and then you had your Terry Kings, your Fantastics, uh, your Ricky and Roberts, you know, Chris Adams. Um, yeah, Chris Adams coming through there. I mean, it was just a, a it was the perfect gumbo, if you will. You know. <laughs> well, you you did. You had you had everything you needed for success, and and plus great storylines. I mean, you yeah. incredible storylines. And and I'm thinking that we might end up. If you're listening to the podcast, we certainly appreciate it. The Fast Podcast. It is April, mid-April. It's the first one of the year. Hopefully, I will have at least three more before 2020 shows up. But um. The second one is probably going to be part two of this because we're almost at about 30 minutes here, and there's a lot more to talk about as the the era of Mid-South transitioned into national wrestling and the UWF attempt and all that sort of stuff. But before we, we get out of this, I, you know, the, the, the greatest, to me, the greatest 60 minutes in the history of wrestling on television in any market, anywhere, I, I don't know a whole lot about New Japan, but but but... In, in America, for sure, was the the second DiBiase turn. And yeah, it is yeah. probably the most talked about episode, but I lived it, and you lived it. We watched it first run that weekend and were in shock with all of the changes that Bill Watts dictated to all of his storylines in one episode. So before we break to uh to to you know transition into what would be uh the second part of this two-part podcast series about mid-south wrestling with judd lormand uh former host of uh, this week in wrestling and of course a lieutenant commander eric blackburn now on uh, seal team on on cbs but a huge wrestling fan pretty much all your life uh, at least you know for w- when you were in double digits and beyond talk yeah. about that that 60 minutes and what it did for Mid-South and professional wrestling in general, because I think it was a pivotal moment for the, for the sport. No, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was, uh, and, and in fact, back on our AOC show, um, you know, we would reference this, this episode of television that you're talking about many, many times over. We would re-air it, uh, the, the segments from it many times over because it was that good. Um, and, you know, and I'm talking like when we're on the air, it's 19, you know, 99 or whatever. It's 14 years after the fact and people who had never seen it, we're still amazed by it. Um, and everyone who had saw it or had seen it, without a doubt, 
remembered it like it was yesterday, of course, because I it was still that do. good. I, I mean, I yeah, still oh, yeah, I I remember, do. I do too. I remember it, seeing it, it in was, its first run, and of course, it's probably the thing I've YouTubed the most most over the years. Is I'll go <laughs> back and watch it again. Yeah, it was it was so good, and um, it was an example of of like, I guess what I alluded to earlier, as far as every second matters. You know, when you produce your television, like, you know, Watts would, would always tell Ross, every minute, every minute of the show matters. And that, they, I, I've never seen someone get the, the, that much bang out of a buck. You know what I mean? Like, right. you've got, a, you've got a, a 40-something minute show. You've got Ric Flair coming to town as the NWA traveling world champion, and he's going to be on your episode of television. For a and, title match. What's that? Yeah, for, for a, title. a title match, That's which right. never happened. Which never happens, exactly. So we're going to have a televised NWA World Heavyweight Championship match. Now, Watts knows that he's got Ric Flair to come in on that morning of the tapings, and he's got to do the most he can with it because a guy like Ric Flair um, is it's going to cost you some money as a promoter, obviously. They get, you know, when they come in, uh, just, just as a side note, back then, you know, a guy like Ric Flair would get a flat fee, you know, a few thousand dollars or whatever to wrestle on your show. But then he would also get, like, as a bonus, he would get, like, a dollar per head. Right, because he was going to sell tickets. Yeah, so if he shows up in the Superdome for, for a big uh, big card or whatever and, and, they, and they draw 9,000 people, he's going to get his flat rate plus, plus his extra. Um, that's how it worked a lot of the times for the NWA champ in these towns. So he's got to make the most of this, right? Because once Flair comes in, he's there to elevate your talent, and then he goes off to, to St. Louis or back to Charlotte or wherever. So Bill Watts sets this up at this taping, and for a week or two prior, he lets people know, okay, in two weeks, Ric Flair will be defending the NWA World Champion, but the storyline basically basically becomes, who's he going to defend against? Right, because there are several worthy candidates for the position of, of challenger to the world champion here. Yes, and if I remember right, I remember remembering this right, it's Dick Slater, Butch Reed, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, Dick Teddy Murdoch Yossi and Dick Murdoch yep. were all involved. Six guys. Yep. And uh, the the main beef is is what DiBiase, Duggan, Reed, and Murdoch, who all think they deserve a shot. And oh gosh, help me out here. Let's see. DiBiase is the heel. Oh, he's the he's one of the top ten according to uh, Pro Wrestling Illustrated and all the other magazines I used to read. He he was Wrestling Observer. He he's was. Most hated. One of the ten most hated wrestlers in the country, and he was in little Louisiana territory. That's right. That's right. So he's most hated at the time. He's one of the most hated guys in the world at the time. And then you've got Duggan and Reed and Murdoch, who are like the three big baby faces in the company at the time. Right. Butch Reed, I believe, was the uh, – I think it was Butch or Dick Murdoch. No, I think it was Dick Murdoch that was the North American champion at the time. And, and either that or he lost it right before. There was some kind of changing. Maybe Reed ended up with it, but there was a Reed Slater thing going on at that time, like some sort Correct. of some sort of you know inner inner fight within the other fights. You know, yeah. they, they they were like having a rivalry deal at that point. That's right. So leading into this one week of television, you've got the players in place. They're all wanting the shot. Who's going to get it? And then finally, the week of television. You know, it's announced Ted DiBiase is going to get the title shot. And in that one episode, Dick Murdoch, who I believe was the North American champion, if I'm not mistaken, and a babyface, comes out, attacks DiBiase before the match. Who is a heel? Now, you've got a babyface attacking the heel, which would normally elicit a, a positive response. Right. But they did, they built this up in a manner where 
Murdoch looked bitter. He looked like he was he was uh, an angry old man trying to stop the worthy young challenger of having his day in the sun. Yes, yes, and um, even you though know, you didn't like the young guy, he earned it. it was kind of what, right. the, what the, the way they positioned it, I guess. The way they positioned it was yes, he's a bad guy, but DiBiase deserves this, right? And Murdoch's the old bitter guy, or whatever. And so, you know, by the time the match takes place, <laughs> or I should, I should say, fast forward to the end, right? But by the time the episode of television is over, of course, Ric Flair's leaving. Somehow or another, he's going to leave with the NWA title. We, of course, we kind of expect that. But by the end of the television, you now have positioned DiBiase as your top good guy to feud with Murdoch as a top bad guy. Then you've got Reed pairing off with Slater, Duggan pairing off with Buzz Sawyer, and the next six months of their cards is and television is ready to go. It's all built out of 60 minutes of TV using a guest star. Yes, and that's where, you know, you mentioned this last time we talked about this. You said, you know, it was almost like this. It was almost like great television writing. Uh, like a series, and I said, Honda, fast, I said, it is better. I don't think we've ever seen in the history of of, of uh, televised drama, scripted drama as we call it, an episode, of, a one episode, one pivotal episode of television that did so much with a guest star. No, I, I think you're right. I mean, it, 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 was, it was incredible. I mean, Ric Flair, I think he wrestled for maybe five minutes at the end, and, and of course, I've told you this before, my favorite part of the whole thing that I'll go back and watch over and over and over again is the segment the segment in the back where Watts is, you know, of course it was filmed ahead of time, but where Watts is in the back with DiBiase, who is being seen by the medical professionals, who I don't really know who they were, but, you know, somebody with a box of Band-Aids or whatever, but he's, right. he's been attacked and he's been, you know, had the brain buster done to him on the concrete floor and, the you know, he's he's beat up and Bill Watts says... He has arterial damage. And, you know, I was probably 15 years old, and I'm like, if you had arterial damage, wouldn't you bleed to death? Like, I didn't know you could just wound an artery. I thought it was something that you had to sew together right away or you would arterial die. Arterial damage is pretty much, yeah, that you're I, dead. I didn't know that gauze could stop the bleeding to the point where you could go out and wrestle with it. But, but it was just this cell job of, you know, poor Ted DiBiase – he, he earned it, and now he's been beaten up to the point where he's near death, but it's his only chance that he'll ever have to fight Ric Flair, so we're going to go ahead and let him go through with it. You might want to take the kids and put them in the other room so they don't see yeah. the blood. I mean, it's such a an oversold thing that hook, line, and sinker, I'm in. I mean, I am in, and I forget at that point that I knew it was fake. It didn't even matter. Well, and I'll, and I'll say this, you know, fast. It was obviously, as we pointed out, it was so well thought out, well planned, well written, whatever you want to call it. But let's not forget how well it was executed. Oh, it was, you know, everybody, I mean, Flair was perfect. You couldn't have found a better guy like, I guess I'm going to get out of here without even breaking a sweat. And he walks out the ring. He doesn't even have to fight at the beginning of the show. You've got right. DiBiase, who is kind of, his character sort of changed before the flip. He is all of a sudden kind of understated and not mouthing off. And and, and so they've kind of flipped his his uh, his attitude before mm-hmm. the, before the turn and f- same with Murdoch Murdoch comes out all fired up you know Teddy I got you your scholarship I got you your spot on the football team I got you your first job you owe me 
and it was yeah, like, step wait aside. a minute, what? Step aside and let me handle this. <laughs> yeah, and then that that happens, and you had the Reed thing with Slater, so they kind of removed themselves from the equation. Masterful writing by Bill Watts. Yes, and and uh, and and an incredible, like I say, execution by all the parties involved, and uh, you know, Flair, DiBiase, Murdoch. Uh, Duggan, Slater, all those guys just played their part perfectly, and it, it turns out to be one. You know, anyone who has seen that, no doubt. If anyone's listening that, that watched that, they remember it right now. I have no doubt in my mind. Well, and if you're younger, because there are a lot, you know, wrestling fans are, are generational. I mean, they, they're they're wrestling fans that watched Gorgeous George and watched Harley Race when he was a jobber in 1960 that are still out there so if you're listening to the podcast and this happened after you were interested in wrestling it is worth going to youtube and searching i don't know ted dibiase rick flair turn or you you could find it pr- pretty easily i think and yeah. it, it is worth yeah. a watch and if you did see it back in the day 35 years ago go back and watch it again knowing all the things you know now after the hour was over and watch it, knowing what they're setting up. It's it's just an amazing piece of of television artistry. It sure is. It sure is. And I, I, I again, like you know, I'm a fan of great television, not just wrestling, but great television. And I, I don't know that anyone's ever uh, done so much with so little, um, so effectively in the history of television. Well, I tell you what, we'll do. We're gonna we're gonna stop here for a second, and and we're we're gonna continue this interview and part two of this wrestling uh, reflection podcast with Judd Lormond of uh, of Seal Team now, and of course of this week in wrestling for years on AOC Plus, working as a promoter and a manager, and all the other roles that you played in the wrestling business, writing your own storylines for the matches that you put on. We'll do a, a part two and kind of talk about what happened for the downhill spiral of, of regional territorial wrestling. That'll be part two. But this is the Fast Podcast. We certainly appreciate you listening. And again, if you've enjoyed it, come back. It's not always going to be about wrestling, though I think, Judd, we probably could do one every week about wrestling. But, but uh, Without a doubt. You know, a, a little bit of everything. Sometimes I'll talk food. Sometimes I'll talk memory lane of growing up in Acadiana and how things have changed here. We'll talk music, talk movies, a little bit of everything. But uh, certainly appreciate you giving me your time here on the Fast Podcast podcast and look for the next episode coming in about a week because I'll have it recorded ahead of time, which is good for me. That's right. That's right. My pleasure, man.